Chapter number four of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter four. Oliver, being offered another place, makes his first entry into public life. In great families, when an advantageous place cannot be obtained, either possession, reversion, remainder, or expectancy, for the young man who is growing up, it is a very general custom to send him to sea. The bold in imitation of so wise and salutary an example took counsel together on the expediency of shipping off all of a twist in some small trading vessel bound to a good unhealthy port. This suggested itself as the very best thing that could possibly be done with him, the probability being that the skipper would flog him to death in a playful mood some day after dinner or knock out his brains out with an iron bar. Both pastimes being, as it is pretty generally known, very favourite and common recreations among gentlemen of that class, the more the case presented itself to the board, in this point of view, the more manifold the advantages of a step appeared. So they came to the conclusion that the only way of providing for Wolf effectually was to send him to sea without delay. Mr. Bumble had been dispatched to make various preliminary inquiries with the view of finding out some captain or other who wanted a cabin boy without any friends. I was returning to the workhouse to communicate the result of his mission when he encountered at the gate no less a person than Mr. Sowerberry, the parochial undertaker. Mr. Sowerberry was a tall, gaunt, large-jointed man, attired in a suit of threadbare black with darned cotton stockings of the same colour and choose to answer. His features were not naturally intended to wear a smiling aspect, but he was in general rather given to professional jocosity. His step was elastic, and his face betokened inward pleasantry, as he advanced to Mr. Bumble and shook him cordially by the hand. I am taking the measure of two women that died last night, Mr. Bumble, said the undertaker. You'll make your fortune, Mr. Sarberry said the beetle, as he thrust his thumb and forefinger into the proffered snuff-box of the undertaker, which was an ingenious little model of a patent coffin. "'I say you'll make your fortune, Mr. Sowerberry,' repeated Mr. Bumble, tapping the undertaker on the shoulder in a friendly manner with his cane. "'Think so,' said the undertaker, in a tone which half admitted and half disputed the probability of the event." Prices land by the board are very small, Mr. Bumble. So are the coffins, replied the beetle, with precisely as near an approach to a laugh as a great official to indulge in. Mr. Sowerberry was much tickled at this, as of course he ought to be, and laughed a long time without cessation. <laughs> very well, Mr. Bumble, he said at length. There's no denying that, since the new system of feeding has come in, the coffins are somewhat narrower and more shallow than they used to be. But we must have some profit, Mr. Bumble. Well-seasoned timber is an expensive article, sir, and all the iron handles come by canal from Birmingham. Well, well, said Mr. Bumble, every trade has its drawback. A fair profit is, of course, allowable. Of course, of course, replied the undertaker. 
And if I don't get a profit upon this or that particular article, why, I make it up in the long run, you see. <laughs> Just so, said Mr. Bumble. Though I must say, continued the undertaker, returning the current of observations with the beetle and interrupted, Though I must say, Mr. Bumble, that I have had to contend against one very great disadvantage which is that all the stat people go off the quickest. The people who have been better off and have paid rates for many years are the first to sink when they come into the house. And I tell you, Mr. Bumble, that three or four inches over one's calculation makes a great hole in one's profits, especially when he'll never for damn provide for, sir. As Mr. Sowbury said this with the becoming indignation of an ill-used man, and as Mr. Bumble felt it was rather tended to convey a reflection on the honour of the parish, the later gentleman thought it advisable to change the subject. Although a twist being up at most in his mind, he made him his theme. By the by, said Mr. Bumble, you don't know anybody who wants a boy, do you? A parochial prentice who is at present a dead weight. A millstone, as I might say, round the parochial throat. Liberal terms, Mr. Sowbury. Liberal terms. As Mr. Bumble spoke, he raised his cane to the bill above him and gave three distinct raps upon the words five pounds, which were entered thereon in Roman capitals of gigantic sign. Cazzo! said the undertaker, taking Mr. Bumble by the gilt-edged lapel of his official coat. That's just the thing I wanted to speak to you about. You know, dear me, what a very elegant button that is, Mr. Bumble. I never noticed it before. Yes, I think it is rather pretty, said the beetle, glancing proudly downwards at the large brass buttons which embellied his coat. The tie is the same as a parochial seal, the good Samaritan kneeling, a sick and bruised man. The poor presented it to me on New Year's morning, Mr. Sowbury. I put it on, I remember, for the first time to attend the inquest on that reduced tradesman who died in a doorway at midnight. I recollect, said the undertaker, the jury brought in died from exposure to the cold and want of necessities of of life, didn't they? Mr. Bumble nodded. And they made us a special verdict, I think, said the undertaker, by adding some words to the effect that if the relieving officer had... Josh foolery, interposed the beetle. If the board attended to all the nonsense and ignorant jurymen talk, they'd have enough to do. Very true, said the undertaker. They would indeed. Juries, said Mr. Bumble, grasping his cane tightly, as was his wont when working to a passion. Juries is uneducated, vulgar, groveling wretches. So they are, said the undertaker. They haven't no more philosophy or political common above them than that, said the beetle. "'snapping his fingers contemptuously. "'No more they have,' quizzed the undertaker. "'I despise them!' said the needle, growing very red in the face. "'So do I,' the undertaker. "'And I only wish we'd had the underbury of the independent salt in our house for a week or two. 
and a beetle. The rules and regulations of the board would soon letting a spirit down for him. Let him alone for that, replied the undertaker. So saying, he smiled approvingly to calm the rising wrath of the indignant parish officer. Mr. Bumble lifted off his coquette of tat, took a handkerchief from the inside of a crown, wiped from his forehead the perspiration which his rage had engendered, fixed the cocked tat on again, and turning to the undertaker, said in a calmer voice, Well, what about the boy? Oh, replied the undertaker, why, you know, Mr. Bumble, I pay a good deal towards the poor's rates. Mm-hmm, said Mr. Bumble. Well, well, replied the undertaker, I was thinking that I, I pay so much of daughter. I have a right to get as much out of them as I can, Mr. Bumble, and so I think I'll take the boy myself. Mr. Bumble grasped the undertaker by the arm and led him into the building. Mr. Sowerberry was closeted through the board for five minutes, and it was arranged that Oliver should go to him that evening upon liking. Afraid to which means, in the case of a parish apprentice, as if the master finds, upon a short trial, that he can get enough work out of a boy without putting too much food into him, he shall have him for a term of years to do what he likes with. When little Oliver was taken before the gentleman that evening, and informed that he was to go that night as general house lad or coffin makers, and that if he complained of the situation or ever came back to the parish again, he might be sent to sea, all knocked on the head, as the case may be, he invented so little motion that they, by common consent, pronounced him a hardened young rascal, and ordered Mr. Bumble to remove him forthwith. Now, although it was very natural that the board, of all people in the world, should feel in a very great state virtuous astonishment and horror that smallest tokens of want of feeling on the part of anybody, they were rather out in this particular instance. The simple fact was that Oliver, instead of possessing too little feeling, possessed rather too much, and was in a fair way of being reduced for life to a state of brutal stupidity and sullenness by the ill usage he had received. He heard the news of his destination in perfect silence, and having had his luggage put into his hand, which was not very difficult to carry, inasmuch as it was all comprised within the limits of a brown paper parcel, about half a foot square by three inches deep. He pulled his cap over his eyes, and once more attached himself to Mr. Bumble's coat-cuff, was led away by that dignitary to a new scene of suffering. For some time Mr. Bumble drew Oliver along, without notice or remark, for the beetle carried his head very erect, as a beetle always should, and it being a windy day, little Oliver was completely enshrouded by the skirts of Mr. Bumble's coat as they blew open. In its clothes to great advantage his flapped waistcoat and drab plush knee-breeches. As they drew near to their destination, however, Mr. Bumble thought it expedient to look down, and see that the boy was in good order for inspection by his new master, which he accordingly did, with a fit and becoming air of gracious patronage. Oliver! said Mr. Bumble. Yes, sir, replied Oliver in a low, tremulous voice. Pull that cap over your eyes, and hold up your head, sir. Although Oliver did as he was desired at once, and passed the back of his unoccupied hand briskly across his eyes, he left a tear in them when he looked up at his conductor. As Mr. Bumble gazed sternly upon him, it rolled down his cheek, 
It was followed by another and another. The child made a strong effort, but it was an unsuccessful one. Withdrawing his other hand from Mr. Bumbles, he covered his face with both and wept until the tears sprung out from between his chin and bony fingers. Well! exclaimed Mr. Bumble, stopping short and darting his little charge with a look of intense malignancy. Well, of all the ungrateful and worst disposed boys as ever I see, Oliver, you are the... No, 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 sir, sobbed Oliver, clinging to the hand which held the unknown cane. No, 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 sir, I will be good indeed, indeed, indeed I will, sir. I am a very little boy, sir, and it is so, so... So what? inquired Mr. Bumble in amazement. So lonely, sir. So very lonely, cried this child. Everybody hates me. Oh, oh, sir, don't. Don't creepy across at me. The child beat his hand on his heart and looked in his companion's face with tears of real agony. Mr. Bumble regarded Oliver's piteous and helpless look with some astonishment for a few seconds, hemmed three or four times in a husky manner, and after muttering something about a troublesome cough, bade Oliver dry his eyes and be a good boy. Then, once more taking his hand, he walked on with him in silence. The undertaker, who had just put up the shutters of his shop, was making some entries in stable by the most appropriate dismal candle when Mr. Bumble entered. Aha, said the undertaker, looking up from the book and pausing in the middle of a word. Is that you, Bumble? No one else, Mr. Sarberry, replied the beetle. Yeah, I bought the boy. Oliver made a bow. Oh, that's the boy, is it? said the undertaker, raising the candle above his head to get a better view of Oliver. Mrs. Sarberry, will you have the goodness to come here a moment, my dear? Mrs. Sarberry emerged from a little room behind the shop and presented the form of a short and squeezed-up woman with a vixenish countenance. My dear, said Mr. Sarberry deferentially, this is the boy from the workhouse that I told you of. Oliver bowed again. Dear me, they went to Chico's wife. He's very small. Well, he is rather small replied Mr. Bumble, looking at Oliver as if it were his fault that he was no bigger. He is so small, there's no denying it. But you grow, Mrs. Sarbury. You grow. Ah, I dare say he will, cried the lady pettishly. On our victuals and our drink. I see no saving and perish children, not I, for they always cost more to keep than they're worth. However, men always think they know best. There! Get downstairs, little bag of bones! With this, the undertaker's wife opened a side door and pushed Oliver down a steep flight of stairs into a stone cell, damp and dark, forming the anteroom to a coal cellar and, and nominated kitchen. Sat a slatternly girl and shoes down to heel, and blue worsted stockings very much out of repair. Yeah, Charlotte, said Mr. Sarbury, who had pulled it over the dam. Give this boy some of the cold bits that be boy for tip. He hasn't come home since morning, so he won't go out without them. I dare say the boy isn't too dainty to eat them, are you, boy? Oliver, whose eyes had glistened at the mention of meat, 
and who was trembling with eagerness to devour it, replied in a negative, and a plate full of coarse, broken victuals was set before him. I wish some well-fed philosopher, whose meat and drink turned to gall with him, whose blood is ice, and whose heart is iron, could have seen Oliver Twist clutching the dainty viands that the dog had neglected. I wish he could have witnessed the horrible avidity with which Oliver tore the bits asunder with all the ferocity of famine. There is only one thing I should like better, and that would be to see the philosopher making the same sort of meal himself, with the same relish. Well, said the undertaker's wife, whom when Oliver had finished his supper, which he had regarded in silent horror, and with fearful auguries of his future appetite, Have you done? There being nothing eatable within his reach, Oliver replied in the affirmative. Then come with me, said Mr. Sowerberry, taking up a dim and dirty lamp leading away upstairs. Your bed's under the counter. You don't mind sleeping among the coffins, I suppose. But it doesn't matter why you do or don't, but you can't sleep anywhere else. Come, don't keep me up all night. Oliver lingered no longer, but meekly followed his new mistress. End of chapter four of Oliver Twist. <laughs>